Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Ben, that's right, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here. I, I'll just admit, I was really distracted by Steve's shirt in that video. Was anybody else something about trendy Bali pajamas or something? I don't know what that means. But anyway, uh, we are continuing on this morning in our study through the entire Bible this year. And uh, I'll tell you one thing I noticed coming back from sabbatical is that I haven't met a whole bunch of you. And a bunch of new people came over the summer and even in the last couple of months. And that is really exciting, but I also realized it means that uh, you may not be following along with us in our reading plan. And I want to invite you to follow along. Um, we're using an app called the Read Scripture app. It's this right here. And one of the really neat things about this app is you can jump in anywhere. You can download this app on your phone. We're in the book of Romans. Just scroll down to uh, the Romans part of the reading plan. Start reading along with us. Finish the year out with us. And then keep on reading when we get to January. Because here's the thing. We're not doing this just to get to the end of the year and check a box and say, hey, we read through the Bible. Now we're done. We can read something else. We want you to develop a daily habit of getting into God's Word and reading God's Word. And it doesn't have to be this app. It doesn't have to be any specific reading plan. But every single day, getting in God's Word and reading God's Word. And so uh, those of you who are new, welcome. And, uh, and I want to encourage you to jump in with us on this. Uh, but like I say, today we've come to the book of Romans and uh, we, we know that, that these books that we've been studying in the New Testament, they weren't written originally as books. The book of Romans is the same. It was originally written as a letter to the first century believers in Rome, and it was written by the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul wrote about half of the books in the New Testament, but this letter to the Romans is his longest, and in it we find his most detailed explanation of the gospel. Many scholars uh, believe that the book of Romans is the most theologically rich book in the entire New Testament. And we're going to spend most of our time today just right up at the beginning of the book of Romans, where Paul develops the overarching theme of his book, of this letter. He summarizes uh, that theme in verses 16 through 17 of chapter 1. And here's what he writes. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel... Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And so Paul wants to make it very clear right from the start of this letter, right at the very beginning, that now everyone can be saved. And you heard him refer to the Jews and the Gentiles. If you're not familiar with that, that word Gentile, it's the Jews and everyone who's not a Jew. Okay, It's everybody. Now everybody can be saved. And, and he's going to start showing his readers why this is such good news. Okay, He's going to take off from here and he's going to start explaining and unpacking the gospel. But in order to do that, he's going to first start drawing a, a somewhat dark background. It's kind of like what happens when you go to a jewelry store. I have three daughters, and uh, they are all well into their teenage years now. But when each of them turned 13, they got to go on a special date with dad. And we would go out to eat, and I gave each of them a letter, letting them know that I love them as their dad. 
I intend to continue loving them and protecting them and providing for them until the day comes when a, a young man comes along and he takes over those responsibilities as their husband. And part of that date was also going to Smith Jewelers downtown and we picked out a ring that I bought for each of my daughters uh, to seal that, that commitment, seal that deal. And you may know that if you go to a jeweler uh, to buy a ring, they don't just reach in the cabinet and pull one out and hand it to you, but they've got a, a nice soft piece of black cloth that they'll put that ring on. And it's against that, that dark background of that black cloth that the, the gemstone shines the purest, and you can, you can see all of the, the beauty of it. And this is, in essence, what Paul does in the opening of, of Romans. He begins with the, the dark background that he's later going to lay the gospel on top of in order to show its full beauty and our desperate need for it. So look at what he says in, in chapter 1, verse 18. Paul says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So Paul's talking about the wrath of God and and that's not a really popular topic. That's not something that we enjoy talking about, God's wrath. We'd rather hear about God's grace and, and God's love and his mercy. But here's the thing. If we don't understand God's wrath, we will never fully appreciate his love and his grace. So what does Paul mean when he refers to God's wrath? Well, he's talking about God's righteous judgment against mankind's unrighteousness. Okay, God's wrath is his righteous judgment against our unrighteousness. And Paul says that wrath is being revealed. It's coming uh, because of our unrighteousness. God's wrath is going to be a reality. And throughout this first chapter of Romans, Paul gets very specific about our unrighteousness. And he gives us several examples. He lists things like greed and idolatry and arrogance and boasting and sexual sin. And it's not meant to be an exhaustive list. Okay, but he does sum the whole thing up in verse 28 when he says, They did what ought not to be done. That's what unrighteousness is. It's doing what ought not to be done. And then he, he also says at the end of verse 18 that, that we suppress the truth by our wickedness. What's that truth that he's talking about? Well, he explains it in verse 25. He says, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. Okay, see, the truth about God is that He is the Creator of everything. He created the sky and the sea and the land and the plants and the animals, and he created humanity. He created you and he created me. But instead of recognizing this and giving God the honor and the worship he deserves, Paul says people worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. That's how they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Now, I don't mind telling you that my wife is a really good cook. She is. She doesn't necessarily uh, like to cook, but she does it for us because she likes, likes making a, a good meal for us. And I'm just telling you, my wife is a really good cook. And so when she makes dinner for our family, we thank her for it, and we show her appreciation for the food that she's made. But can you imagine 
if my wife went to all of the effort and all of the trouble to put together a, a meal for us and she brought it to the table and she put it in front of us and instead of thanking her, we thanked the food itself. Thank you, mashed potatoes. Right? How, how would she feel if we said, I appreciate you, beef from the crock pot? I mean, it's just absurd, right? You don't thank the food. You thank the one that, that created the food, that prepared the food. Some of you are hunters. I'm a hunter. It's deer season, right? And so you're probably watching different deer hunting videos, and, and you'll always see guys that they shoot a deer, and then they thank the deer for giving its life, right? That deer didn't give you its life. That's why it ran away after you shot it. It didn't want to give you anything. But we worship the created instead of the creator. And Paul says that that's exchanging the truth about God for a lie. Now we come to the second chapter of Romans, and Paul develops this thought a little bit further. Okay, Again, he's painting this black background that he's going to lay the gospel on top of. So he's talked about unrighteousness. He's talked about trading the truth of God for a lie. And now he says in verse 5, Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. So here goes Paul again talking about God's wrath, right? And he says it's coming not only because of unrighteousness, not only because humanity has done what ought not to be done, but also because we refuse to turn back to him. That's what it means to have an unrepentant heart. It's, it's doing these acts of unrighteousness and then saying in our hearts, I don't care. I don't care what God says. I'm just going to do things the way I want to do things. I'm going to live my life the way I want to live my life. That's an unrepentant heart. And Paul says that when we live that way, we are storing up wrath against ourselves for the day when God's judgment is revealed. And it points to the fact that there is a day that is coming when each one of us will have to stand before our creator God and give an account for how we lived our lives. And on that day, God is going to repay each person for what they have done. Now look at verse 13. He says, It's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Okay, so on that day, on that day when we stand before God in judgment, He's going he's gonna to give each person what they deserve according to what they have done. And Paul says that, that there's something that, that God's going to judge us on. He's going to base this judgment on. And, and we're going to talk about the law in just a minute, okay? I want you to keep that in your mind. But first, I want, want you to notice the two phrases in this passage. We've bolded them here. Righteous in God's sight and be declared righteous. On that day, it's not going to matter what your friends think. It's not going to matter what your parents think. It's not going to matter what your employer thinks or, or your coworkers. It's not going to matter at all what your spouse thinks. It's only going to matter what God thinks. He is the only one who will determine whether or not we have lived righteous lives. And Paul is getting at something here that every person needs to realize. And you really need to grasp this. It's that your greatest need is to be declared righteous in God's sight. That's your greatest need. 
is that on that day when you stand before God, your greatest need is to be declared righteous in his sight. Now, this concept of righteousness is rooted in the Old Testament. Okay, Paul was talking about the law a minute ago, and and God gave his people, the Israelites, the law to show them how to live righteous lives. And if they followed God's law, then they could be declared righteous. So the Old Testament understanding of righteousness was essentially being good and doing good in the way that God defined good so that you could be declared righteous. Many of you will be familiar with the movie Saving Private Ryan. And in the opening of that movie, we see an elderly man, and he's walking through a cemetery. And, uh, and then we, we quickly go back in his mind, and, and he's thinking about his experiences in World War II. Private Ryan was one of four brothers, uh, and all of his brothers were in World War II with him. And all of them were killed in action. And so the government decides that they're going to bring Private Ryan home. They're going to send him home to his mother. She's lost enough. They're going to return him home. And so they send this team of men out to find Private Ryan. And the majority of the movie follows these men as they're searching all around Germany, trying to find this man who they're going to bring home. And ultimately, they do find him, but only after great sacrifice, great cost to the team. And just before one of the team members dies, he leans over to Private Ryan and he says to him, earn this, earn this. And so then we come to the end of the movie and and, and now elderly Private Ryan is in that cemetery and he's kneeling down in front of a headstone and he says, I've tried to live my life the best that I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I've earned what all of you did for me. And then he stands up and he looks at his wife and he says, tell me I was a good man. Tell me I was good enough. And deep down inside, I I think every single one of us feels that, that desire, feels that pull for someone to tell us that we're good enough, to tell us that, that we've lived good enough lives. Private Ryan lived his whole life trying to live up to the sacrifice those men made for him, trying to earn what they did for him. Was it enough? Was it good enough? Am I a good man? We all want to know the answer to that question. And Paul actually answers it for us in chapter 3. But I want to warn you, the answer isn't what we might hope for. And again, we're still painting that dark background that the gospel is going to come on. I promise you the good news is coming. But look at what he says in verse three, or chapter 3, verse 10. He says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have all together become work, worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And then a little further ahead, he says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Paul is saying that no matter how good we might think we are, no matter how good other people might, might perceive us, no matter what other people say or how hard we try, it is impossible to be declared righteous in God's sight just by being good. By keeping the law. We just can't do it. But Paul also says that's not really what the law was intended for. 
That's not why he gave us the law in the first place. Paul says the law wasn't given to make us righteous. It was given to show us how unrighteous we really are. The law, in a lot of ways, is like one of those electronic speed limit signs that you see on the side of the road sometimes, right? As you're, you're going by it, it clocks you, and then it displays your speed for everyone to see how badly you're breaking the law, right? Or if you're going way too fast, it just says, slow down, okay? Don't ask me why I know that, but it does. It gets to a point where it just says, slow down. But those signs don't really do anything to actually make you slow down, do they? They just show you that you're breaking the law. And that's kind of how God's law was intended to work. It, it shows us where we're wrong. Let's put this to the test. Let's, uh, let's do just a little test here this morning and take just a few of the Ten Commandments, okay? I'm going to ask you some questions. I want you to answer honestly. You can answer in your head. You don't have to answer out loud, but I want everyone to participate, all right? So here we go. I want you to think about this. Have you ever told a lie? Ever, anything, any lie, doesn't matter how big, how small, have you ever told a lie? Okay, number two, have you ever stolen anything, anything at all? Doesn't matter how big or small, have you ever stolen anything? It wasn't yours, you took it anyway, you ever done something like that? Okay, the third one, have you ever seen what someone else had and wished it was yours? Ever. Ever. Have you ever done that? Not Noblesville people. Carmel people do that, right? But not Noblesville people. Listen, that's only three of the Ten Commandments. And I would be willing to bet that there is no one in this room who wasn't guilty of all three. So what did the law just do for us? It didn't help us become more righteous, did it? What it did is it, is it helped us understand how unrighteous all of us really are. I mean, what we just all said is, is that we are essentially lying, covetous thieves. Everyone in this room is a lying, covetous thief, okay? You should check your wallet and you should make sure your purse is still next to you because you are sitting next to a lying, covetous thief. But they're sitting next to one too, so don't judge, okay? But it's true. And you see how the law works. It, it highlights our unrighteousness, and it's uncomfortable, but it's the reality. And, it, and so if we're only declared righteous by obeying the law, which Paul said earlier in Romans, but no one can actually obey it, which he just said in Romans, then where does that leave us? Like, is there any hope for us at all? Is there any other way that we can be declared righteous in God's sight? Well, here comes the good news, finally, right? Paul has painted that black background of unrighteousness, trading the truth of God for a lie, our unrepentant hearts, our inability to do what is right. But then in Romans 3, 21, he says this, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Folks, the good news of the gospel is that while it is impossible for us to earn God's declaration of righteousness, he graciously gives it to us when we put our faith in Jesus. 
Verse 23 says, All have sinned and fallen short, but all can also be justified freely by grace. And I want you to notice that word justified. It's a a somewhat churchy word. We talk about just being justified or justification. Uh, That simply means to be declared righteous. And there are two sides to justification. There's uh, forgiveness, but there's also a gift that is given. And let me try to illustrate this with what happens when you buy your first home, okay? Most of us don't actually own our homes. And if you want to put that to the test, just stop paying your uh, bills, and you'll find out really quick who owns your home, right? The bank owns your home. What we actually own is a mortgage. And so let's say that, that um, we owe $150,000 on that mortgage. The bank owns the home. We have a debt of $150,000 that we owe, and we have to pay that back to the bank. But your bank happens to be called the Merciful Bank and Trust Company, and they are in the, the habit of just forgiving debt, right? They just love paying off people's mortgages, and so they forgive your debt, and that takes your account to zero. The debt is forgiven, and you now owe nothing, right? This is the first half of justification. It's the forgiveness of debt. It's the forgiveness of sin, but that's only half of what happens, and this is so important for you to understand, especially if you've been following Christ for for quite some time, and, and we understand the forgiveness of sin part, but I'm just telling you, if you don't understand the second part of justification, you will still live the rest of your life trying to earn righteousness, and that is not the gospel. Here's the other half. It's that the righteousness of Christ is given to us through faith in Christ for all who believe. When you believe in Jesus, God credits Christ's righteousness to your account. So in our home buying illustration, you had a $150,000 debt that was paid off. But the gospel says God didn't just pay off your debt. He didn't just bring it to zero. No, he gave you a credit. So the Merciful Bank and Trust Company not only is in the habit of forgiving mortgages, but they also want to give you a gift of $15 million. That's what it means to be credited with righteousness. And you can see and and you can certainly understand that that if someone were to pay off your debt, $150,000 debt, and bring you to zero, like that's going to change your life, right? That's going to drastically change your life. But can you imagine if somebody gave you $15 million? I mean, that's a game changer. You would never have to work to earn anything ever again. And that's exactly what Christ has done for us on the cross. This is the good news of the gospel. Not only that we can be forgiven of our sins, but also that we don't have to work to earn our righteousness. That we can be declared righteous on Christ's behalf. Paul has shown us that according to the gospel, there are only two ways to be declared righteous, to be justified before God. It's either going to be through your righteousness or through the righteousness of Jesus. And when we think about this, we think about our righteousness as our resume, as our report card, as our reputation. It's an account of our, uh, our moral performance before God. And it's flawed. I mean, we've already seen that right? We've already put ourselves to the test. But we think about Christ's righteousness as his resume, 
his report card, his reputation. And it's an account of his absolutely flawless moral performance before God. And so when you think about the day when you will have to stand before God and give an account of your life, like which one of these do you want him to look at? Which one of these do you want him to see? We read in Romans 2.6 that God will judge each person according to what they have done. And if what you have done is put your faith in Jesus, you will be judged based on his righteousness, not your own. Listen, Jesus absorbed God's wrath so that we would not have to. He sacrificed himself for the forgiveness of our sins, and he has offered to credit us with his righteousness. Have you received that free gift? Have you received the free gift of Christ's righteousness? Your greatest need is to be declared righteous in God's sight, and the only way that that is going to happen is by receiving his free gift of righteousness through faith. Have you done that? I want you to know that if you haven't, you can do it today. The scripture is clear that we are not guaranteed next week. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. We're not even guaranteed this afternoon. But today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of God's favor. Don't put this off any longer. And why would you, quite honestly? In fact, I want to invite you to close your eyes with me this morning. And maybe some of you are recognizing today that Uh, You've been trusting in your own goodness. You've been hoping that you'll get to the end of your life and that the good will outweigh the bad and and that God will look at that and he'll say, that's good enough, but he won't. And maybe you're recognizing that, that you need Christ's righteousness on your behalf. If you're ready to put your faith in Christ this morning, you can pray a simple prayer like this. I'm gonna pray a line and then I'm gonna give you a minute to pray it after me. If you want to put your faith in Christ, pray something like this. God, I recognize that I am a sinner and I have fallen short of your glory. Say something like that to God this morning. And I know that my greatest need is to be declared righteous in your sight, but your law shows me that I am not. And you can pray something like this. God, I believe that you sent your son, Jesus, who lived a perfect life and then laid his life down so that I could be forgiven. And God, I'm ready to stop putting my faith in my own goodness. And today I put my faith in Christ. Thank you for the free gift of Christ's righteousness. Thank him for saving you. And maybe commit something like this to him. Jesus, you died for me. I commit to living for you. I want you to know if you prayed that prayer for the very first time this morning, God heard it. And you are now a part of the family of God, a son or a daughter of God. But putting your faith in Christ is not meant to be something that we do in secret or something we do in private. And so your next move is to tell someone. Tell the person who invited you today. Come and tell me after the service. Tell your mom. Tell your dad. Tell your sister. 
a trusted Christian friend that can help you in your walk with Christ. And it's fitting that we're going to share communion together today as we close out this message. And whether you just put your faith in Christ or you've been following Christ for a long time, we invite you to celebrate this with us today. Even if it's your first time at Genesis, uh, we want you to take communion with us. I hope you picked up the elements as you came in. If you didn't, they're on a table in the back of the room, and you're welcome to go and, and to get those. But we know that on the night when Jesus would be betrayed, he had one last meal with his disciples. And this wasn't unusual. It it was a Passover meal. Everyone was celebrating the Passover. And there would have been all kinds of of symbolic elements on the table for that Passover celebration and the meal that they were going to have. But Jesus did something at that meal, something that would stick with his followers uh, until he came again. And he took two of the elements and he gave them new purpose and new meaning in himself and in what he was about to do. As he took the bread from the table, he broke it and he gave thanks. And he said, this represents my body broken for you. And when you eat it, I want you to remember me. Let's do that together today as we eat the bread. And then he took the cup that was in front of him. And he said, this cup represents my blood poured out for you. And when you drink it, remember me. Let's do that together this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you this morning for the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you that he left his rightful place in heaven that he took on flesh and became like us in every way, that he was tempted in every way just as we are yet without sin. He lived an absolutely perfect life and then he willingly laid that life down to pay for our sins. God, we thank you that you powerfully raised him from the dead, giving us hope beyond this life. And Father, we thank you for the gift of his righteousness given to us who believe that on that day when we stand before you, we will not have to stand on our own merits. We will not have to wonder, have I been good enough? Indeed, we have not. But we thank you that Christ has, that his perfect life is credited to us, that his righteousness is given to us as a free gift. And so, Father, we now remember his sacrifice on our behalf, and we say we want to live good and holy lives before you. We want to be people who are righteous not to earn your favor, God, but because of your favor. Father, we want to live lives that are pleasing to you. Thank you for this reminder of what you've done for us, God. You saved us. You rescued us. You are coming for us. We love you, Father. And it's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen.